0: Knights of the Round Table, God make you a good man, and fail not of beauty. The Round Table was founded in patience, humility, and meekness. Thou art never to do outrageously, nor murder, and always to flee treason, by no means to be cruel, and always to do ladies, damsels, and gentlewomen succour. And ever be courteous, and never refuse mercy to him that asketh mercy. For a knight that is courteous and kind and gentle has favor in every place. Thou shouldest never hold a lady or gentlewoman against her will. Thou must keep thy word to all and not be feeble of good belief and faith. Right must be defended against might and distress must be protected. Thou must know good from evil and the vain glory of the world, because great pride and vanity maketh great sorrow. Should anyone require ye of any quest, so that it is not to thy shame, thou shouldest fulfill the desire. Ever it is a worshipful knight's deed to help another worshipful knight, when he seeth him in great danger. For ever a worshipful man should loathe to see a worshipful man shame, For it is only he that is of no worship, and who fareth with cowardice, and shall never show gentleness, or no manner of goodness, where he seeth a man in any danger. But always a good man will do another man, as he would have done to himself. It should never be said that a small brother has injured or slain another brother. Thou shouldest not fail in these things: charity, abstinence, and truth. No knight shall win worship, but if he be of worship himself, and of good living, and that loveth God, and dreadeth God, then else he getteth no worship, here be ever so hardly. An envious knight shall never win worship, for an envious man wants to win worship. Ye shall be dishonored twice, therefore, without any. And for this cause all men of worship hate an envious man, and will show him no favor. Do not or slay not anything that will in any way dishonor the fair name of Christian knighthood. For only by stainless and honorable lives, and not by prowess and courage, shall the final goal be reached. Therefore be a good knight, and so I pray to God, so ye may be. If ye be of prowess and of worthiness, then ye shall be a knight of the table round.
1: From the earliest stories about England's legendary King Arthur, to the heroic last stand of the Knights of St. John on the tiny island of Malta in 1565, when the call went out to all the knights in Europe to come and fight to save Christendom, the armor-clad knights fought for cause and country, becoming living legends in some cases, and enduring as legends for centuries in many others. At King Arthur's Round Table, according to legend, medieval knights were elite warriors, and a decisive factor in medieval warfare because a battle was typically won by the army, which had the most knights. In the beginning, knights could become only men who proved their military skills on the battlefield. Over time, the title of a knight became reserved for sons of knights who were almost always nobles. But the title of a knight wasn't inherited. Knightly training was a long process that started at the age of eight and usually didn't complete By the age of 21, when the knightly title was formally conferred with a stroke with the sword on the neck or the shoulder during a ceremony known as accolade. Roberto Valletta, the 65-year-old knight who had been raised from the age of 10 to fight, became the Hero of Malta, the capital of which was named in his honor after he fought and won the Battle of Malta in 1565, defeating Suleiman the Great's mighty Muslim forces and saving Christianity in the process, giving us the eight-pointed Maltese cross. This incredible story can be found in our archives, titled The Origin of the Maltese Cross. We'll add the link in our show notes for you. Today, knighthood is deferred in England upon movie stars, singers, computer tech wizards, and basically anyone who is shown to have made a contribution to society or culture in some way. Really? There is a growing number of people in England who believe that the concept of knighthood has been corrupted, in that the qualities of courage, bravery and obedience to duty have been cast aside in favor of wealth, social prowess, artistic ability and socially conscious positions. Singer David Bowie defied the social trend and turned down the Queen's offer of knighthood, saying in so many words, that the honor should only be bestowed upon true heroes. How right he was. The whole concept of awarding knighthood to artists and philanthropers is being challenged in England after the recent effort to bring deserved knighthood to bestow honor upon legendary World War II RAF hero Johnny Johnson and the 55,700 men of the British Bomber Squadron who died to save England from the Nazis during World War II. The men joined the bomber squadron knowing their chances of surviving were 500 to 1 against. Each man's goal was to make it to 30 operations but very few saw it that far. Recognition for Mr. Johnson at age 95 the last survivor of the flying group known as the Dam Busters was denied. That's where knighthood is today and that's one big reason why we do this show 1001 heroes legends histories, and mysteries. These are the stories of the Knights of Old, real accounts of men who earned the title of Knight the Hard Way. The Knights came from all around medieval Europe and Russia, and if ever there was a league of superheroes in medieval times, these are the brave men and women who carved out their legends for future generations to honor. There was Alexander Nevsky, one of the most famous and important knights of Russian history, who, at age 18, led an army that defeated a massive attack by the Swedes in 1240. Then there was Bertrand de Goslin, who, as a short, squat, and homely young man who dreamed of going to war someday, donned his armor and defeated a dozen of France's best jousting veterans in a single day, later rising to fame as a hero and knight. We'll tell the story of Godfrey of Bouillon, the German knight who rose to knighthood from poverty, gained land, then sold it all to raise an army to defeat the Muslims who had stormed Jerusalem in the year 1025 in what history calls the First Crusade. One of the greatest knights of early medieval times was King Arthur, very likely a real hero, but whose legend far outgrew his dramatic real life story as a knight and king. His legend was created and popularized by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th century, although Arthur was thought to have lived in the 5th or 6th century, at which time he led the Britons against the Saxon invaders. While he does appear in historical sources as a British soldier, there is no evidence for his Knights of the Round Table, his miraculous sword Excalibur, or other fantastic elements from the Arthurian legend. His fantastic story, which has been the subject of countless books and movies as told by Geoffrey of Monmouth and others, a story which includes all the richly characterized personages of Merlin, Guinevere, and the brave knights of the Round Table, is the subject of this week's podcast at our sister site 1001 Classic Stories and Tales, which you can find wherever podcasts are found, or at our home site at 1001storiespodcast.com. We'll also post a link in our show notes here for you. And here we begin the story of the Prince of Russia, Alexander Nevsky. Whoever comes to us with a sword, from a sword, will perish. Every Russian student learned these famous words of Alexander Nevsky in primary school. He uttered the infamous sentence after accomplishing a series of crucial victories over German and Swedish invaders the Grand Prince of Novgorod and Vladimir did a lot for his country during the most challenging times in its history. For that reason, many Russians nowadays consider him to be one of the most important heroes in their nation's history. Alexander Nevsky was born in Parislav Zalesky, one of the major strongholds in the Vladimir Principality. He was named after the Christian martyr St. Alexander, whose birthday was usually celebrated on June 9th ten days after Alexander was born. He would pick up the name Nevsky as an honor to a future military action. One of his ancestors was Prince Yuri Dolgoruki, the founder of Moscow. Bound by the law at that time, Alexander had no chance of becoming a prince in his home principality, since he was the youngest of all the brothers in his family. When he turned three, his father, Prince Yaroslav, invited one of his boyars, Fyodor Danilovsk, to teach little Alexander reading and writing. A boyar was a member of the Russian aristocracy next in line to a prince. He also learned a lot about the history of the ancient Rus and the people who ruled it. Later on, Alexander moved on to developing combat skills and perfected horseback riding. His father often took the boy with him when he was reviewing complaints or issuing crucial orders. He learned a lot about diplomacy and the art of negotiations. Special attention was paid to the discussion of critical issues with his boyars. You should endure more than your people. That was the key principle Prince Yaroslav taught young Alexander. His governing style was marked by utter devotion to his people and indomitable courage in times of trouble. The chronicle of that time describes him as follows. He was taller than others and his voice reached people as the sound of the trumpet, and his face was like the face of Joseph, whom the Egyptian pharaoh placed as next to him as the king of Egypt. His strength was part of the strength of Samson, and God gave him the wisdom of Solomon. In 1236, when Alexander turned 16, he was summoned by the people of Novgorod in the northwest of ancient Russia. The city at that time was one of the major trading areas along the ancient trading route known as from Varangians to Greeks. The ancient city of Novgorod, 400 kilometers west of Moscow, is now a river tourist center located at the junction of the Ola and Volga rivers and considered to be one of the most beautiful cities in Russia. Back in medieval times, it was the second largest city in Russia, a center for arts and learning, as well as the fur trade from which it gained much of its riches. When ancient papyrus writings were discovered recently in Russia, most of them originated in Novgorod. Novgorod was constantly under attack from bordering countries, namely Germany and Sweden, and in 1236, when Alexander arrived, they were in dire need of leadership. Local merchants and boyars had developed a system of self-government called Veshe, a discussion forum where they assembled to address burning issues and make crucial decisions concerning the future of their city, like today's town hall meetings, but in this case with the capability to actually make some decisions. And one big decision was choosing which prince they would invite from the outside to rule in their principality. After a discussion they chose Alexander, the youngest of Yaroslav's sons. At that time, Alexander proved himself a reserved and firesighted politician. He was convinced that an open fight with the Tatar-Mongol state of the Golden Horde would be nothing but a waste of his soldiers' lives. So he decided to pay a tribute to the Khan of the Horde without losing the national identity of the Rus. For a young leader who still hadn't proved himself on the battlefield, this decision could have been viewed as an act of contrition, showing weakness, making this decision a very wise one for the young man, and the decision that was to serve his people well in the future. Alexander's top priority was getting even with the invaders from the west, the Swedish army, known as the Livonian Knights, or the Knights of the Sword. And these guys were tough. In July of 1240, the Swedish commanders Jarl Berger and Ulfasi attempted to invade Novgorod land under the pretext of exterminating the Gentiles on behalf of the Pope. All anybody had to do back in those days was say they were taking lands and souls for the Pope, and the money and materials started to flow. The Swedes believed they could take a quick and easy victory over the Russians, whose troops they know had been weakened by the Mongols. What they didn't know was that Prince Alexander had a plan for them. Without requesting assistance from Vladimir, nor collecting all of the Novgorod militia, all of which was going to soak up precious time. Young Alexander correctly sized up his fighting force and managed to intercept the Swedes on July 15, 1240, at the mouth of the Isora River, handing them a humiliating defeat in an epic battle that lasted for hours. During this battle, Alexander proved himself to be a capable warrior and leader of men. He moved on to other lands after this battle, but returned to battle one of the largest and most fierce cavalries in Europe. A couple years later. The decisive moment of the standoff came on April 5, 1242, on the ice of the Chudsko Peipus Lake, currently located on the border between Russian Federation and Estonia. It went down in world history as the battle on ice. If it sounds like an ABC ice skating feature presentation, it wasn't. It began with Alexander's first words at sunrise, God Please be the judge of my battle with these arrogant foes attacking us. And ended with the complete destruction of the Livonian knights and their new allies, the Germans. The enemy was not aware of the trap Alexander had set up for them. He positioned the best Russian forces on their flanks, covering the front with only a handful of soldiers. Livonian knights used their conventional structure. They shaped the rear guard as a cone, sometimes referred as a German swine. Several horsemen up front were followed by huge formations of knights. When the Livonians were about to destroy the infantry, Alexander's forces from the flanks unexpectedly attacked them, completely destroying the enemy. In addition, the ice broke under the heavy armor of the Livonian knights. Many soldiers drowned. When the knights felt their formations disintegrated, they chose to retreat, chased by the Rus for about 10 miles. News of the battle's outcome struck the whole of Europe. Few could even imagine that the foot soldiers of Novgorod could defeat heavily armed knights. Many historians view Alexander's victory as a significant event in the history of the Middle Ages. Not only was it a manifestation of the growing Rus military power, but a pretext to the future unification of the Russian lands a century later. Nevsky's move to strike an unwritten neutrality agreement with the Mongols ended up saving Russia from much of the damage the Mongols were reaping in Eurasia. He is still considered a true Russian hero and legend today, having achieved the status of sainthood in Russia. Nevsky definitely occupies a seat in the League of Medieval Knight Superheroes. Next up is Godfrey of Bouillon, a German-born badass in his own right, who rose from poverty to pursue his dream of becoming a knight and made the bigs, serving the often besieged Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV loyally and receiving the duchy of Lower Lorraine for his efforts. When the First Crusade was declared in 1095, Godfrey sold his lands, gathered an army of literally thousands of knights, and led them to the Holy Land for battle, where he mercilessly kicked butt in battle after battle. He was among the first to enter the city of Jerusalem, as it was captured by the Christian forces. When Pope Urban II called for a crusade, to liberate Jerusalem from 500 years of Muslim domination, and also to aid the Byzantine Empire, which was under Muslim attack. Godfrey took out loans on most of his lands, or sold them, to the Bishop of Lies and the Bishop of Verdun. With this money he gathered thousands of knights to fight in the Holy Land as the army of Godfrey of Bouillon. In this he was joined by his older brother, Eustace, and his younger brother, Baldwin, who had no lands in Europe. He was not the only major nobleman to gather such an army. Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse, also known as Raymond of St. Gilles, created the largest army. At age 55, Raymond was also the oldest and perhaps the best known of the Crusader nobles. Because of his age and fame, Raymond expected to be the leader of the entire First Crusade. Adhemar, the papal legate and bishop of Le Puy, traveled with him. There was also the fiery Bohemian, a Norman knight from southern Italy, and a fourth group under Robert II, Count of Flandria. Each of these armies traveled separately. Some went southeast across Europe through Hungary, and others sailed across the Adriatic Sea from southern Italy. Godfrey, along with his two brothers, started in August of 1096 at the head of an army from Lorraine. Some say it was 40,000 strong. Along Charlemagne's road, as Pope Urban II seems to have called it, the road to Jerusalem. After some difficulties in Hungary, he arrived in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, in November. The Pope had called the crusade in order to help the Byzantine emperor Alexius fight the Islamic Turks who were invading his lands from Central Asia and Persia. Godfrey and his troops were the second to arrive in Constantinople after Hugh of Vermandois. During the next several months, the other Crusader armies arrived as well. Suddenly, the Byzantine emperor had an army of about four to 8,000 mounted knights and 25,000 to 50,000 infantry camped on his doorstep. But Godfrey and Alexius had different goals. The Byzantine emperor wanted the help of the Crusader soldiers to recapture lands that the Seljuk Turks had taken. The Crusaders, however, had the main aim of liberating the Holy Land in Palestine from the Muslims and reinstating Christian rule there. For them, Alexius I and his Turks were only a sideshow. Worse, the Byzantine emperor expected the Crusaders to take an oath of loyalty to him. Godfrey and the other knights agreed to a modified version of this oath, promising to help return some lands to Alexius I. By the spring of 1097, the Crusaders were ready to march into battle. Months turned into years of fighting, all headed in the direction of the Holy Land. In 1098, Godfrey took part in the capture of Antioch, which fell in June of that year after long and bitter fighting. It was in Jerusalem that the legend of Godfrey of Bouillon was born. The army reached the city in June of 1099 and built a wooden siege tower from lumber provided by some Italian sailors who intentionally scrapped their ships to get over the walls. The major attack took place on July 14th and 15th of 1099. Godfrey and some of his knights were the first to take the walls and enter the city. It was an end to three years of fighting by the Crusaders, but they had finally achieved what they had set out to do in 1096, to recapture the Holy Land and, in particular, the city of Jerusalem and its holy sites, such as the Holy Sepulchre, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ he endowed the hospital in the muir after the First Crusade. They offered him a slot as king, but as was typical of Godfrey's Christian ethics, he refused to be crowned king upon the plea that he would never wear a crown of God where his savior had worn a crown of thorns. A True Knight One of the most famous knights in medieval history was Bertrand de Goslin, one of the most famous warriors that France has ever produced. Bertrand was born around 1320 in a small town in France called Dinan, which is near Brittany, into a working-class family, without the social advantages that other young men his age had, and historians describe that he was ridiculed because of the way he looked, described as being a short, ugly man. When he was 17 years of age, he heard that there was a medieval tournament taking place in the nearby town of Rennes, so he set off on a cart horse to see the event. When he finally arrived at the medieval tournament, he was mocked by the other young knights because of his appearance. But the worst insult to him wasn't the mocking. It was that because he was not part of the nobility, he was not allowed to take part in the tournament. Bertrand had been training, and he knew that he belonged on the same field as these guys. He was also tired of taking guff from them, and he was ready to take them down a few notches. He was a spirited and determined young man, and nothing was going to stop him from entering the jousting competition that day. Not only that, he had twice most people's share of guts and ability. He managed to find a horse that he could use, then some armor, and then a helmet to cover his face and therefore disguise his identity. Legend has it that he won every jousting competition that he was challenged to that day, defeating no less than 15 well-trained and armed knights, leaving everybody wanting to know who this brilliant knight was finally someone lifted the visor of his helmet to reveal his identity talk about having your day in court the shocked crowd cheered as bertrand de goslin's homely face was revealed as his own family looked on in amazement bertrand de goslin soon became a famous knight and was known as a fearless fighter and a legend in france where he used what were described as hit and run tactics during the hundred years war with england I guess you could say he was a forerunner in guerrilla tactics. He became a great leader of men over a period of 23 years and was one of the best military men and generals of his era. In 1354, Bertrand de Goslin was knighted. One famous story about him, in 1357, Bertrand was involved in a famous duel with the English lieutenant Henry of Lancaster who had attacked his hometown, Dinan in France. In this attack Thomas of Canterbury took Bertrand de Goslin's brother Olivier captive. Bertrand was filled with rage and challenged Thomas of Canterbury to a duel. Both knights were mounted on horses and charged each other with lances raised, this challenge ending in a draw. Then they fought a long battle with swords until Thomas finally lost his sword in the heat of the battle. Bertrand de Goslin dismounted from his horse and kicked the weapon away out of the reach of his opponent. Rather than surrendering with grace, Thompson of Canterbury then quickly mounted his steed and tried to crush Bertrand under his horse, but de Goslin used his sword to kill the horse and Thomas was thrown to the ground. Bertrand then pulled off his helmet and punched him in the face with an iron fist, which ended the duel and ruined Thomas of Canterbury's looks for many years to come. Bertrand de Goslin was given highest office in France and was made a constable of France in 1370. He died in 1380 and was buried with honor amongst the kings of France in the Abbey of Saint-Denis in Paris. Then there was Joan of Arc, one of the most courageous women that ever lived, and here's her story. Joan of Arc was a French heroine who played a significant military role during the Anglo-French Hundred Years' War. She actively participated in a number of battles and military conflicts between English and French forces from 1429 to 1431, and her last name wasn't Arc, nor was she from the town of Arc. Her real name was Jehanette d'Arc, or Tarque, and she grew up in Dom a village in northeastern France, the daughter of a farmer and his devoutly Catholic wife. During her trial before an ecclesiastical court for heresy in 1431, Joan referred to herself only as Jehan la Pucelle, or Joan the Maid, and initially testified that she didn't know her last name, probably in an effort to save her family from persecution. There was a time during the Hundred Years' War when the French had suffered repeated defeats at the hands of the English forces, and they were desperate for a morale booster. At the age of 16, Joan of Arc came to the French with a story that she had had a vision ever since she was 13, that she would be by the French king's side where she was to play an important role in the outcome of the wars. Naturally, everyone thought she was, in today's lingo, a few French fries short of a happy meal. In May 1428, Joan's visions instructed her to go to Vossoleurs and contact Robert de Baudricourt, the garrison commander and a supporter of what would soon be France's King Charles VII. At first, Baudricourt refused Joan's request but months later, after seeing that the determined little maid was gaining the approval of villagers, he relented and gave her a horse and an escort of several soldiers. Joan cropped her hair and dressed in men's clothes for her eleven-day journey across enemy territory to Chinon, the site of Charles's court. At first, Charles was not certain what to make of this peasant girl who asked him for an audience and professed she could save France. Joan, however, won him over, when she correctly identified him dressed incognito in a crowd of members of his court. The two had a private conversation during which it is said Joan revealed details of a solemn prayer Charles had made to God to save France. Still tentative, Charles had prominent theologians examine her. The clergyman reported that they found nothing improper with Joan, only piety, chastity, and humility, all the qualities of a knight. Save, perhaps, chastity, depending on which knighthood you belong to.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Finally, Charles gave the 17-year-old Joan of Arc a decent set of armor and a horse and allowed her to accompany the army to Orleans, the site of an English siege. In a series of battles between May 4th and May 7th, 1429, The French troops took control of the English fortifications. Joan, who carried a banner and showed no fear, leading the attacking French troops with everything she could muster, was wounded by an arrow through the side of her neck, but soon returned to the front to encourage a final assault. The French forces were spurred on by the sight of this young girl who was willing to die for her cause, and they fought like they'd never fought before. They also said she had a wicked temper. Once placed in control of the French army, the teenage peasant didn't hesitate to chew out prestigious knights for swearing, behaving indecently, skipping mass, or dismissing her battle plans. She even accused her noble patrons of spinelessness in their dealings with the English. According to witnesses at her retrial, Joan once tried to slap a Scottish soldier who had eaten stolen meat. The Scots teamed up with France during the Hundred Years' War. She also supposedly drove away the mistresses and prostitutes who traveled with her army at sword point, hitting one or two of them in the process. Personal attacks by the English who, upon seeing her on the battlefield, called her rude names and joked that she should return home to her cows reportedly made Joan's blood boil. The maid's short fuse is evident in transcripts of her court hearings when a clergyman with a thick regional accent asked what language her voices spoke She retorted that they spoke French far better than he did. By mid-June, the French had routed the English and, in doing so, their perceived invincibility as well. Although it appeared that Charles had accepted Joan's mission, he did not display full trust in her judgment or advice. After the victory at Orleans, she kept encouraging him to hurry to Reims to be crowned king, but he and his advisors were much more cautious. However. Charles and his procession finally entered ring, and he was crowned Charles VII on July 18, 1429. Joan was at his side, occupying a visible place at the ceremonies. In the spring of 1430, King Charles VII ordered Joan of Arc to confront the Burgundian assault. During the battle, she was thrown off her horse and left outside the town's gates. The Burgundians took her captive and held her for several months negotiating with the English who saw her as a valuable propaganda prize. She had also taken a crossbow bolt through the thigh by this time. Finally the Burgundians exchanged Joan for 10,000 francs and she was officially a prisoner of England. Charles VII of France was unsure what to do. Still not convinced of Joan's divine inspiration, he distanced himself and made no attempt to have her released. I think we just completed an episode called Amelia Earhart in which the leader of a country made no effort to save a captured heroine. Funny how history repeats itself. Though Joan's actions were against the English occupation army, they had a worse fate planned for her. She was turned over to church officials, who insisted she be tried as a heretic. The church in England in those days had long forgotten anything Jesus had tried to teach 14 centuries ago. They were berserk headmasters who ruled ruthlessly, and were grabbing a private property worth millions, while hiding behind the cloak of purity and righteousness. So in the end, our courageous little farm girl was charged with 70 counts, including witchcraft, heresy, and the worst offense of all, dressing like a man. Initially, the trial was held in public, but it went private when Joan of Arc bettered her accusers, embarrassing them with their answers. Between February 21st and March 24th, 1431, She was interrogated nearly a dozen times by a tribunal, always keeping her humility and steadfast claim of innocence. Instead of being held in a church prison with nuns as guards, she was held in a military prison. Joan was threatened with rape and torture, though there is no record that either actually occurred. Who knows, she might have been safer in a military prison those days than in a church. She protected herself by tying her soldiers' clothes tightly together with dozens of cords. Frustrated they could not break her, the tribunal eventually used her military clothes against her, charging that she dressed like a man, which was a sin in the church's eyes at that time. During her captivity, the French launched a number of campaigns towards Rouen, where she was captured. But the campaigns were successfully withstood by the English. She was burnt at the stake on May 30th, 1431, Despite her death at the young age of 19, Joan of Arc became a national legend of France and was later canonized by the Church. She was awarded sainthood hundreds of years later, in 1920. But her story didn't end there. France's favorite saint was martyred by her English foes who ordered her remains to be cast into the Seine. Lately, scientists believe they have established the facts surrounding her execution. Much is unknown about the life of the warrior Joan of Arc, Facts have often been mixed with myth and theory, but what is generally agreed is that Joan's body was burned three times by the English and ashes from the foot of the pyre were supposedly discovered in 1867, lurking in the Paris loft of an apothecary. French scientists who have been studying those ashes confirmed in 2006 that a piece of cloth found among the remains may have been a fragment of Joan of Arc's gown. A new series of DNA tests of bones and tissue found among the ashes confirmed that they belonged to a female. These initial discoveries suggest recent controversial claims surrounding the death of Joan Arc are wrong. One theory put forward by Ukrainian anthropologist Sergei Gorbenko suggested Joan was not even burnt at the stake, but lived to the age of 57. Another theory holds that she was a man. But the initial discoveries by forensic anthropologist Philippe Charlier, the project leader, indicate that the standard version of Joan of Arc's death by being burnt as a witch by the English appears to be right, although the research has added intriguing detail to the story of her execution. Tests on one bone found in the relic showed it was the femur of a cat. The discovery tallies with the medieval practice of throwing a black cat on a witch's pyre so as to appease the devil, according to Charlier. He said the most exciting discovery by his 18-man team at the hospital Raymond Poincare near Paris was in the carbon dating of the piece of cloth. It is linen of high quality, and we can confirm that it dates from the 15th century. It could have been a robe or a bag. According to historians, Joan of Arc was 19 when she was burnt at the stake in Rouen by the English on 30th of May 1431. Like most people who were burned at the stake, she died of smoke inhalation. The Cardinal of Winchester is recorded as having ordered her to be burnt a second time. Her organs still survived the second fire, so a third burning was ordered to destroy the body completely. Her cinders and debris were to be thrown into the Seine. However, in 1867, ashes that were said to include remains of Joan of Arc were found, as previously mentioned, in the Paris loft of an apothecary. These were transferred to a museum in Chinon, where they are still kept. Charlier came to prominence last year when he ascertained that Agnes Sorel, the favorite of King Charles VII, died from mercury poisoning. He took an interest in Joan of Arc because her presumed remains were stored in the same Chinon museum as those of Sorel. For her courage and humility, we award her a seat with our superheroes. John Hawkwood was one of the foremost mercenary warriors in 14th century Europe. This century was marked by near-continuous warfare in different theaters of Europe, and Hawkwood steadily rose from humble origins to be one of the foremost military leaders of the era. Although of English origins, it was in Italy and the neighboring territories that he displayed his real military talents, often successfully leading his mercenary army against a number of different foes. He was also noted for continuously switching sides in a way that benefited him and his company, consequently earning him the loyalty of the troops and a vast fortune as well. Maybe not a good choice with regard to morals and ethics. He still deserves a place on our superhero knight's roundtable just for the amount of victories he chalked up. Although of humble origins and illiterate, Hawkwood was able to rise to fortune, wealth, fame and power during his long career. According to unconfirmed historical sources, Hawkwood was briefly employed by the English forces during the Hundred Years' War and participated in some battles on the English side. However, what is more definitely known is that he later became part of a number of mercenary companies in Burgundy and traced a mercenary career which soon landed him as the head of the famed White Company by the 1360s. He subsequently relocated to Italy together with his mercenary company, frequently taking part in the battles between different Italian cities and papal factions. From 1364 to 1387, Hawke would remain one of the most prominent mercenary leaders in Italy. During this period, he fought for a number of cities and factions. Due to his military prowess, he was frequently paid by factions in battles not to participate, or to participate on their side, despite payment from the enemy faction. He was winning both ways. He was able to exploit this to his profit and amassed a vast fortune as well as land estates in Tuscany, Romagna and other places. He fought for Pisa against Florence in 1364 and then against both Pisa and Florence in 1370. In 1375 he fought for the papal forces and a few years later became part of the Anti-Papal League. His expert maneuvering usually brought him even more profit as the warring factions in Italy eagerly sought a battle-hardened mercenary leader like him, who commanded a loyal body of mercenary troops. Although he remained a mercenary through most of his career, John Hawkwood spent his final years in Florentine, offering his military service for the defense of the city a number of times. He led the Florentine army as commander-in-chief in the 1390s and successfully warded off the Milanese threat. He was subsequently able to defeat the Milanese army and brought the Florence-Milan conflict to an end. In recognition of his services, Florentine granted him citizenship, including full pensions, as well as posthumous honors. And here's a true hero knight for you, one who turned the tide of history and deserves to take a seat at our star round His first name was John. In the days he fought as a young man, the knights with their bulky armor were becoming obsolete, but he had been born into fighting and set out from the north coast of England to earn his fame. John was baptized on the 6th of January, 1580, at Willoughby, near Alford, Lincolnshire, England, where his parents rented a farm from Lord Willoughby. He claimed descent from an ancient family at Curdley, Lancashire, and was educated at King Edward VI Grammar School in Louth from 1592 to 1595. After his father died, He left home at the age of 16 and set off to sea. He served as a mercenary in the army of Henry IV of France against the Spaniards, fighting for Dutch independence from Spanish King Philip II. He then set off for the Mediterranean. There he engaged in both trade and piracy and later fought against the Ottoman Turks in the Long Turkish War. He was promoted to a cavalry captain while fighting for the Austrian Habsburgs in Hungary in the campaign of Michael the Brave in 1600 and 1601. After the death of Michael the Brave, he fought for Radu Serban in Wallachia against Ottoman vassal Iremia Movila. He is reputed to have killed and beheaded three Turkish opponents in single combat duels, for which he was knighted by the Prince of Transylvania and given a horse and a coat of arms showing three Turks' heads. However, in 1602, he was wounded in a skirmish with the Tartars, captured and sold as a slave. As he described it, we are all sold for slaves like beasts in a market. John claimed that his master, a Turkish nobleman, sent him as a gift to his Greek mistress in Constantinople, who fell in love with the young Englishman. He was then taken to Crimea, where he escaped from the Ottoman lands into Muscovy, then on to the Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth, before traveling through Europe and northern Africa, returning to England in 1604 a hero at the age of 24. He was then chosen for a special mission to explore an uncharted territory for a private venture, and he received intense training in cartography so that he could provide details England would need for that territory. He joined an expedition comprised of three small ships which sailed from England in December of 1606 But his presence as a known warrior aboard the ships earned him instant enemies who resented his fame and started rumors that he might try to wrestle control of the mission. His understanding of the mission was to discover and chart new territory for England. The faction that secretly opposed him had come to hopefully mine wealth from the new lands, something that Spain had been doing successfully for a hundred years. He was charged falsely with mutiny but upon reaching their destination the leaders opened the sealed instructions for the new colony and their mission, and the instructions revealed that he was to become one of their leaders. They arrived at their destination in June of 1607 with less than ample food stores and a divided leadership, the less intelligent half winning the choice of where to set up a settlement. This turned out to be a low, swampy area that was half saltwater, half fresh, unfit for drinking and unfit for human waste which got into the water supply, causing debilitating sickness. Within three months, 60 of the 104 men sent on the mission were dead, and many of the rest were freezing or sick. When a relief ship came in early January 1608, nearly 100 new settlers came with it, and through carelessness, the village was set on fire, destroying almost all the food stores. That winter, the river froze over as well, and the settlers were forced to live in the burnt ruins. During this time, two things happened. John, who had survived in good shape thus far, was captured by natives while hunting for food. His two companions killed. Back at the settlement, all healthy men were ordered to dig up gold-tinged mud and load it onto the three ships. Mud which contained iron pyrite, known as fool's gold. It was worthless. The friendlier half of the local natives brought corn, while our superhero met and survived probable death by making fast friends for a few weeks with the leader of the natives and his family. When his hunting party failed to return, his enemies back at camp declared him a deserter, and when he did return, fat and healthy, he was placed on trial, with hanging being the goal of his detractors. When the supply ship returned with the captain of the expedition, John presented his case and was declared innocent of any wrongdoing seeing the foolishness of the mission leaders who were forfeiting military readiness and exploration to dig and load mud into the ship's hold, and seeing a sharp division between two groups of men, one consisting of gentlemen who were accustomed to ordering their work done, the other being of men who were working tradesmen and soldier types. John gathered a group of men from the tradesmen and trained them in the art of warfare and defense, then supervised the building of a full stockade then made peace with the native families and their children to whom he would give beads and trinkets to their delight. Then got tough with native men who were stealing from camp, including grabbing one large native by his hairlock and dragging him out in waist-deep water, putting a knife to his neck, and telling him in his native language to stop stealing or he would kill him. This earned him the respect of, not the hate of, the natives. He then demanded that those who didn't work would not eat. Then he got busy exploring the waterways and bays of this new land, naming various points of land and coves after the men who proved loyal to him. All the time he faced opposition from men too cowardly to oppose him in public, men who were sending letters back to England with lies about his actions in order to make themselves look good. Then the ship's captain returned with orders from the king to build a house for the native chief to please him an act of contrition among many that bothered John greatly, knowing that the natives did not respect weakness. He had no desire for riches. He saw this new land as a thing of beauty, with its vast rivers and bays and wildlife. He was a man of honor who kept his word, and his men knew it as well as the natives. You see, he lived the code of the knights that had gone before him. His was the path of courage and humility, not of cowardice and greed. His was the warrior's path. Six trying years passed, during which time he returned to England, but in 1614, returned again to the land he had explored in 1608, but this time further north, along the coast of what we today call Maine and Massachusetts Bay in the Americas. He named the region New England. The resulting map, published in 1616, was the first that bore the term New England, though the native place names were replaced by the names of English cities at the request of Prince Charles. The settlers of Plymouth Colony adopted the name that John gave to that area, and other place names on the map survived to modern times, such as Charles River and Cape Ann. He made two attempts in 1614 and 1615 to return to the same coast. On the first trip, a storm dismasted his ship. In the second attempt, He was captured by French pirates off the coast of the Azores. He escaped after weeks of captivity and made his way back to England, where he published an account of his two voyages as a description of New England. He remained in England for the rest of his life, but was best remembered for saving the colony and the mission on the coast of Virginia at Jamestown. John, that is, Captain John Smith, died June 21, 1631. He was buried in 1633 at the South Isle of St. Sepulchre without Newgate Church, Holborn Viaduct, London. The church is the largest parish church in the City of London, dating from 1137. Captain Smith is commemorated in the south wall of the church by a stained glass window. His gravesite was lost during a German bombing raid in 1940 that destroyed the churchyard. Richard the Lionheart was the King of England from 1189 to 1199. He also remained the ruler of different continental territories of England before his ascension to the English throne. During his reign as King of England, he directly participated in the Crusades meant to liberate Jerusalem from the hands of Saladin. He earned his epithet due to his valor on the battlefield and his success against Muslim armies in many encounters, even if he couldn't free Jerusalem. Richard the Lionheart was the third son of England's King Henry II. In Henry II's lifetime, he faced rebellion from a number of his sons, including Richard. After the failure of the rebellion, Henry II forgave Richard and made him king of the Duchy of Aquitaine, which was part of England's continental territories. Richard's disagreements with Henry resurfaced later, and he aligned himself with the French King Philip in a bid to withstand his father's power. In time, Richard stood victorious in his conflict with Henry II and was named successor by Henry just before his death in 1189. In 1188, Jerusalem had fallen to the forces of Saladin. Richard had vowed to participate in the effort to liberate Jerusalem before his coronation, a sort of campaign promise, you might say. After he ascended the throne, he launched a large-scale effort to bring together a suitable army for the Third Crusade. In gathering the funds for the crusade, Richard sold notable official positions and even imposed the Saladin tithe to bring sufficient money in the treasury. After bringing together a sufficiently large army, Richard set out to join the Third Crusade in 1190. He was joined in this campaign by Philip II of France. The earliest victories for Richard the Lionheart and the accompanying Crusader forces came in 1191 when Acre fell to their control. His forces later won a significant victory over the forces of Saladin in the Battle of Arsouf the same year. Another major victory for the Crusader army under Richard came at the Battle of Jaffa. However, despite these victories, Richard couldn't sufficiently deflate Saladin's hold of the Holy Land and the two leaders were eventually forced to negotiate the terms of settlement. As a result of these negotiations, Christian fortifications in Ascalon had to be razed, while Muslim forces in Jerusalem allowed the travel of Christian pilgrims and merchants to the city. Of course, they were killed by bandits in large numbers as they traveled toward Jerusalem. But to stop that killing, the Knights Templar were formed. Returning from the Crusade, Richard fell into the hands of Leopold V of Austria when his ship was wrecked and he had to take a land route through Europe. Leopold V eventually handed over Richard to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI. He remained a prisoner of Henry VI from 1193 to early 1194. During this period, a large ransom was brought together in an attempt, spearheaded by his mother Eleanor, to have the king released. Eventually, 100,000 pounds of silver were paid as ransom for Richard, and he was released in February of 1194. After his release, he regained the land lost by England to France during his absence, and named his brother John as his successor. This was the John of Robin Hood fame, the John that was pretty badly maligned in the novel Ivanhoe, was known for his many affairs while king, including affairs with wives of men in his service, men he would send on long trips. Hugh de Neville's wife at one point in 1204 offered to pay a fine of 200 chickens if she could just sleep with her husband one night. That's how bad it got. This was also King John who, according to legend, lost the crown jewels in the swampy area known as the Wash in 1216. According to contemporary reports, John traveled from Spalding, Lincolnshire, to Bishop's Lynn, Norfolk, but he was taken ill and decided to return while he took the longer route by way of Wisbech. He sent his baggage train along the causeway and ford across the mouth of the Well Stream. This route was usable only at low tide. The horse drawn wagons moved too slowly for the incoming tide, and many were lost. However, Scholars can't agree on whether the king's jewels were actually inside the baggage train, and there is evidence that his regalia were intact after the journey. The location of the accident is supposed to be somewhere near Sutton Bridge on the River Neen. There is also a suspicion that John left his jewels in Lynn as security for a loan and arranged for their loss. However that may be, he stayed the following night, the 13th of October, 1216, at Swineshead Abbey moved on to Newark-on-Trent, and died of his illness on October 19th. As to the jewels, we may never know for sure. For Richard the Lionhearted had definitely a seat at our table. Now for the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar have become associated with legends concerning secrets and mysteries handed down to the select from ancient times. Rumors circulated even during the time of the Templars themselves. One rumor has it that Joseph of Arimathea was trusted with the Holy Grail, the cup into which Jesus' blood dropped at the crucifixion, the same cup that Jesus used at the dinner before his death, and that the knights were charged with protecting it and hiding it in England when Joseph escaped the purge of Christians following the crucifixion of Jesus and was placed in a boat with no sails in the Mediterranean, along with Lazarus and Mary Magdalene, where they eventually reached the shores of France then traveled on to England, Lazarus staying in France to begin Christianity there, Mary Magdalene finding her place in the mountains of Turkey, and Joseph, who some say was the uncle of Jesus, making the perilous trip back to England, where his tin mines were located in Cornwall. Masonic writers added their own speculations in the 18th century, and further fictional embellishments have been added in popular movies such as Ivanhoe, Foucault's Pendulum, and the Da Vinci Code, modern movies such as National Treasure and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, as well as video games such as Broken Sword and Assassin's Creed. Beginning in the 1960s, there have been speculative popular publications surrounding the Order's early occupation of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and speculation about what relics the Templars may have found there, such as the Holy Grail, just mentioned, or the Ark of the Covenant, which some believe was taken by knights to present-day Ethiopia. We discussed the Ark of the Covenant in one of our early episodes titled Questions of the Lost Ark, and you should also check out our Knights Templar episode, The Knights Templar, Crusaders or Conspirators, available in our archives at 1001storiespodcast.com. So who were the Knights Templar? After Europeans in the First Crusade recovered Jerusalem in 1099 and Richard won the agreement from Saladin to allow Christians to visit the Holy Land, many Christians made pilgrimages to various sacred sites in the Holy Land. Although the city of Jerusalem was relatively secure under Christian control, the rest of Outremer was not. Bandits and marauding highwaymen preyed upon pilgrims who were routinely slaughtered, sometimes by the hundreds, as they attempted to make the journey from the coastline at Jaffa through to the interior of the Holy Land. In 1119, the French knight Hugues de Payens approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem and Varmond, Patriarch of Jerusalem, and proposed creating a monastic order for the protection of these pilgrims. King Baldwin and Patriarch Varmond agreed to the request, probably at the Council of Nablus in January of 1120 and the king granted the Templars a headquarters in a wing of the royal palace on the Temple Mount in the captured Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Temple Mount had a mystique because it was above what was believed to be the ruins of the Temple of Solomon, the name and place from which the Templars originated. The Crusaders therefore referred to the Al-Aqsa Mosque as Solomon's Temple, and from this location the new order took the name of Poor Knights of Christ in the Temple of Solomon, or Templar Knights. The order, with about nine knights, including Godfrey de Saint Omer and Andre de Montbard, had few financial resources and relied upon donations to survive. Their emblem was of two knights riding on a single horse, emphasizing the order's poverty. The impoverished status of the Templars did not last long, however. They had a powerful advocate in Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, a leading church figure the French abbot primarily responsible for the founding of the Cistercian order of monks, and a nephew of André de Montbard, one of the founding knights. Bernard put his weight behind them and wrote persuasively on their behalf in the letter in praise of the new knighthood, and in 1129 at the Council of Troy, he led a group of leading churchmen to officially approve and endorse the order on behalf of the church. So there's your date, 1129, and that's when the Knights of the Templar officially began. With this formal blessing, the Templars became a favored charity throughout Christendom, receiving money, land businesses, and noble-born sons from families who were eager to help the fight in the Holy Land. With its clear mission and ample resources, the order grew rapidly. Templars were often the advanced shock troops in key battles of the Crusades, as the heavily armored knights on their warhorses would set out to charge at the enemy, ahead of the main army bodies, in an attempt to break opposition lines. One of their most famous victories was in 1177 during the Battle of Montgisard, where some 500 Templar knights helped several thousand infantry to defeat Saladin's army of more than 26,000 soldiers. They acquired large tracts of land both in Europe and the Middle East. They bought and managed farms and vineyards. They built massive stone cathedrals and castles. They were involved in manufacturing, import, and export. They had their own fleet of ships and at one point they even owned the entire island of Cyprus. In the mid-12th century, specifically in 1187, the tide began to turn in the Crusades. The Muslim world had become more united under effective leaders such as Saladin, and dissension arose amongst Christian factions in and concerning the Holy Land. The Knights Templar were occasionally at odds with the two other Christian military orders, the Knights Hospitaller and the Teutonic Knights and decades of inter feuds weakened Christian positions, both politically and militarily. After the Templars were involved in several unsuccessful campaigns, including the pivotal Battle of Hattin, Jerusalem was recaptured by Muslim forces under Saladin in 1187. The battle and surrender were bloody and bear retelling here, as this was a pivotal point in history between Christian and Muslim worlds. In the background of these divisions, Saladin had become Vizier of Egypt in 1169 and had taken Damascus in 1174 and Aleppo in 1183. You can read the entire history of war in the Middle East by looking at the history of Damascus, which was right in the middle of it all, from Mamluks to Mongols. Saladin controlled the entire southern and eastern flanks of the Crusader states. Through the use of propaganda, He united his subjects under Sunni Islam and convinced them that he would wage holy war to push the Christian Franks from Jerusalem. However, Saladin often made strategic truces with the Franks when there was a need to deal with political problems in the Muslim world. And one such truce was made in 1185. It was rumored among the Franks that Raymond III of Tripoli had made a deal with Saladin, under which Saladin would make him king of Jerusalem in return for peace. This rumor was echoed by Ibn al-Ether, but it's unclear whether it was true. Raymond III was certainly reluctant to engage in battle with Saladin, and he did become the king of Jerusalem. So you can figure it out for yourselves. In 1187, Reynald of Châtillon raided a Muslim caravan when the truce with Saladin was still in place, and some accounts claim that Saladin's sister was raped during the attack. Saladin swore that he would kill Reynald and sent his son Al-Afdan ibn Salah ad-Din and the emir Gokburi to raid Frankish lands surrounding Acre. Gerard de Reedford and the Templars engaged Gokbert in the Battle of Cresson in May, where they were heavily defeated. The Templars lost around 150 knights and 300 foot soldiers who had made up a great part of the military of Jerusalem. Philip states, that the damage to Frankish morale and the scale of the losses should not be underestimated in contributing towards the defeat at Hatton, which was just around the bend. In July, Saladin laid siege to Tiberias, where Raymond III's wife, Ashiva, was trapped. In spite of this, Raymond argued that Gay Lusignan, the king of Jerusalem, should not engage Saladin in battle, and that Saladin could not hold Tiberias because his troops would not stand to be away from their families for so long. The Knights Hospitaller also advised Guy not to provoke Saladin. However, Gerard de Ridefort advised Guy to advance against Saladin, and Guy took his advice. Norman Housley suggests that this was because the minds of both men had been so poisoned by the political conflict 1180-87 that they could only see Raymond's advice as designed to bring them personal ruin, and also because he had spent Henry II of England's donations in calling the army and was reluctant to disband it without a battle. This was a gamble on Guy's part, as he left only a few knights to defend the city of Jerusalem. The gamble ended up costing the knights dearly, as he led them into a slaughter. On July 3rd, the Frankish army started out towards Tiberias, harassed constantly by the Muslim archers. They passed the springs of Turan, which were entirely insufficient to provide the army with water. On the morning of July 4th, Crusaders were blinded by smoke from the fires set by Saladin's forces outside their camps. The Ayyubid army was arranged in three divisions, the center under Saladin, the right under his nephew al musafar Umar, and the left commanded by Gokburi. The Franks came under fire from Muslim-mounted archers from the division commanded by Gokburi, who had been resupplied with 400 loads of arrows that had been brought up during the night. Gerard and Reynald advised Guy to form battle lines and attack, which was done by Guy's brother Amalric. Raymond led the 1st Division with Raymond of Antioch, the son of Bohemian III of Antioch, while Balian and Jocelyn III of Edessa formed the rear guard. Thirsty and demoralized, the crusaders broke camp and changed direction for the springs of Hatton, but their ragged approach was attacked by Saladin's army, which blocked the route forward and any possible retreat. Count Raymond launched two charges in an attempt to break through to the water supply at Lake Tiberias. The second of these enabled him to reach the lake and make his way to Tyre. After Raymond escaped, Guy's position was now even more desperate. Most of the Christian infantry had effectively deserted by fleeing in a mass onto the Horns of Hatton, where they played no further part in the battle. Overwhelmed by thirst and wounds, many were killed on the spot without resistance, while the remainder were taken prisoner. Their plight was such that five of Raymond's knights went over to the Muslim leaders to beg that they be mercifully put to death. Guy attempted to pitch the tents again to block the Muslim cavalry. The Christian knights and mounted sergeants were disorganized, but still fought on. This was a very bad day for the Knights Templar, and it was getting worse by the minute. Now the Crusaders were surrounded and, despite three desperate charges on Saladin's position, were broken up and defeated. Prisoners after the battle included Guy, his brother Almaric II, René de Châtillon, Gérard de Ridefort, Humphrey IV of Turan, Hugh of Jabala, Plevain of Botron, Hugh of Giblet, and other barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Perhaps only as few as 3,000 Christians escaped the defeat. Guy of Lusignan and Renaud of Châtillon were brought to Saladin's tent. Saladin offered Guy a drink which was a sign in Muslim culture that the prisoner would be spared, although Guy was unaware of this. Guy passed the goblet to Reynald, but Saladin struck it from his hand, saying, I did not ask this evil man to drink, and he would not save his life by doing so. He then charged Reynald with breaking the truce. Some reports, such as that of Baha al din claim that Saladin then executed Reynald himself with a single stroke of his sword. However, Others record that Saladin struck Reynald as a sign to his bodyguards to behead him. Guy assumed that he would also be beheaded, but Saladin assured him, Kings do not kill kings. Saladin commanded that the other captive barons were to be spared and treated humanely. All 200 of the Templar and Hospitaller knights taken prisoner were executed on Saladin's orders, with the exception of the Grand Master of the Temple. The executions were by decapitation. St. Nisusius, a knight-hospitaler venerated as a Christian martyr, is said to have been one of the victims. Captured Turkopolis, locally recruited mounted archers employed by the Crusader states, were also executed on Saladin's orders. While nominally Christian, these auxiliaries were regarded as renegades who had betrayed Islam. The rest of the captured knights and soldiers were sold into slavery, and one was reportedly bought in Damascus in exchange for some sandals. The high-ranking Frankish barons captured were held for ransom. In the aftermath, the true cross was supposedly fixed upside down on a lance and sent to Damascus. On Sunday, July 5th, Saladin traveled the six miles to Tiberias, and there Countess Eshiva surrendered the citadel of the fortress. She was allowed to leave for Tripoli with all her family, followers, and possessions. Raymond of Tripoli, having escaped the battle, died of pleurisy later in 1187. Guy was taken to Damascus as a prisoner, and the other noble captives were eventually ransomed. In fielding an army of 20,000 men, the heavy defeat at Hatton meant there was little reserve with which to defend against Saladin's forces. The importance of the defeat is demonstrated by the fact that in its aftermath, 52 towns and fortifications were captured by Saladin. By mid-September, Saladin had taken Acre, Nablus, Jaffa, Toran, Sidon, Beirut, and Ascalon. Tyre was saved by the arrival of Conrad of Montferrat, resulting in Saladin's assault being repulsed with heavy losses. Jerusalem was defended by Queen Sibylla, Patriarch Heraclius, and Balian, who subsequently negotiated its surrender to Saladin on October 2nd during the siege of Jerusalem. According to the chronicler Irmoul, news of the defeat caused Pope Urban III To die of shock. In the coming years, the Templars were forced to relocate their headquarters to other cities in the north, such as the seaport of Acre, which they held for the next century. The order's military mission, now less important, support for the organization began to dwindle. In 1305, the new Pope Clement V, based in Avignon, France, sent letters to both the Templar Grand Master Jacques de Moulet and the hospitality grandmaster, Folk de Villerey to discuss the possibility of merging the two orders. Neither was amenable to the idea, but Pope Clement persisted, and in 1306 he invited both of them to France to discuss the matter. At dawn on Friday, 13th of October, 1307, King Philip IV ordered de Molay and scores of other French Templars to be simultaneously arrested. The arrest warrant started with the phrase, God is not pleased. We have enemies of the faith in the kingdom. Claims were made that during Templar admissions ceremonies, recruits were forced to spit on the cross, deny Christ, and engage in indecent acts. Brethren were accused of worshipping idols, and other offenses such as financial corruption, fraud, and secrecy. Many of the accused confessed to these charges under torture, and these confessions, even though they were obtained under duress, caused a scandal in Paris. The Templars were accused of idolatry and suspected of worshipping either a figure known as Bapomet or a mummified severed head they had recovered, amongst other artifacts, at their original headquarters on a Temple Mount that many scholars theorize might have been that of John the Baptist, among other things. As for the leaders of the Order, the elderly Grand Master Jacques de Molay, who had confessed under torture, retracted his confession. Geoffrey de Charnay, preceptor of Normandy, also retracted his confession and insisted on his innocence. Both men were declared guilty of being relapsed heretics, and they were sentenced to burn alive at the stake in Paris on the 18th of March, 1314. Des Molay reportedly remained defiant to the end, asking to be tied in such a way that he could face the Notre Dame Cathedral and hold his hands together in prayer. According to legend, he called out from the flames that both Pope Clement and King Philip would soon meet him before God. His actual words were recorded on this parchment as follows. God knows who is wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death. Pope Clement died only a month later and King Philip died in a hunting accident before the end of that same year. With the last of the order's leaders gone, the remaining Templars around Europe were either arrested and tried under the papal investigation Absorbed into other military orders such as the Knights Hospitaller, or pensioned off and allowed to live out their days peacefully. By papal decree, property of the Templars was transferred to the Knights Hospitaller, which also absorbed many of the Templars' members. In effect, the dissolution of the Templars could be seen as the merger of the two rival orders. Templar organizations simply changed their name from Knights Templar to Order of Christ. Over the next 300 years, the Knights survived, and grew strong again. With their military mission and extensive financial resources rebuilt, the Knights Templar funded a large number of building projects around Europe and the Holy Land. Many of these structures are still standing. Many sites also maintain the name Temple because of centuries-old associations with the Templars. For example, some of the Templars' lands in London were later rented to lawyers which led to the names of the Temple Bar Gateway and the Temple Underground Station. Two of the four inns of court, which may call members to act as barristers, are the inner temple and the middle temple. Distinctive architectural elements of Templar buildings include the use of the image of two knights on a single horse, representing the knight's poverty and round buildings designed to reassemble the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Through the centuries, the knight's heavy armor was replaced by lighter and more effective protection, and the image of the armored knight began to disappear by the 17th century. The Battle of Malta in 1565 may have been the last large-scale military action that involved fully armored knights, but armor continued to be used, in some measure, by armies right up to World War I. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed this trip to the Middle Ages. So many different stories appear when you're researching this material that it's hard to stay on the same path. But hopefully the variety and change of pace makes it all the more enjoyable. I enjoy sharing it all with you. Make sure you catch up with our archived podcast, The Maltese Cross and the Knights Templar, if you want to continue the story of the Knights of the Middle Ages. You'll find links to these episodes in our show notes. And don't forget, if you're ready for a degree that will move you ahead in life, check out Penn State World Campus. Just visit worldcampusinfo.com. That's worldcampusinfo.com. And have that discussion with one of the admissions counselors or coaches. It might be the best decision you ever made. And thank you for these latest reviews at 1001 Heroes. This one from New Mexico Gal on August 2nd, 2017. Entertaining and educational. Great series of podcasts. And this one from Tony 101. A lot of fun, enthusiastic host, and interesting stories. Check it out. And Refreshing by History Liker. No doubt this is one of the top five podcasts on my phone, one of the ones where I wait for Sunday night in order to listen to the episode as soon as it releases. You will not be disappointed. Thank you all so very, very much. And this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.